0: So and the title is Make a Joyful Noise to the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it the world, and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Praise be to God.
1: During this uh, Christmas Advent season, uh, Bruce has been... Essentially, um, selecting a Christmas carol and using that each week as a springboard for for the message. Um, today we are we are doing that as well. Uh, I guess you could you might call this the finale of, of our Advent series of messages. Um, the song that we're we're using as our springboard today is the song "Joy to the World," and uh, my guess is that. that Many, if not most of you, are familiar with this carol. Um, it is based in Psalm 98, and it's written by Isaac Watts. Uh, Isaac Watts wrote a number of of hymns based in the Psalms, and typically, what he does, and I think he has done it here as well, is he he makes an effort to connect the Psalm, even though the Psalm is an Old Testament uh, scripture. He makes an attempt to connect the psalm with the reality of a New Testament faith in Christ. So I, th- I think we'll, you know, if you were to look through the, the Christmas carol itself, you would see that there's a lot of the realities of Jesus and, and the birth of Christ uh, that are present. Um, but here's, here's what's interesting. It's really only the first verse of the Christmas carol that really would be considered a Christmas carol. Um, you're familiar with it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. He's, he's urging us to make room in our hearts for this, this Messiah that's been born into the world. Just as there was no room for him in the inn at his birth, um, Isaac Watts is urging us to make room in our hearts for him. In our lives, uh, but the remainder of the carol essentially is based in the last two thirds of Psalm 98, which is not really about the birth of Christ. In actuality, it's about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, when He comes in judgment. So, this is to me pretty pretty odd. Uh, as, as maybe maybe you read this this psalm this way, the psalm essentially is calling us to glorify God, to praise God. He's calling all of creation to glorify God. Why? Because he's coming to judge the world. Doesn't that sound odd to you? I would have expected maybe a different kind of preamble to the announcement of judgment coming into the world. It might might have gone something like this. Run for your lives. God is coming to judge the world. But, But in Psalm 98, there's a call to praise. There's a call to worship. There's a call to glorify God, for he comes in judgment. And so today's message is about judgment. We're going to look at how intuitive this judgment is we're going to look at its difficulty it's a problem for us that judgment is coming we 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 fear it and i think rightly so and then lastly we'll look at god's provision of grace in the midst of it and so if you would be looking for an outline i'm sorry i didn't get an outline in your your bulletin the bulletin was printed about a week ago because of trying to allow the the office staff to have this past week off but um so if you're looking for an outline, it would be um, essentially what's on your screen there. We're going to look at, at the fact that, that judgment is intuitive, I, I'm suggesting, that we anticipate it. And within that, within that point, we're going to look at um, our preoccupation with kings and royalty. We'll look at the importance of truth and the importance of justice. And then from there, we'll, we'll look at the difficulty of judgment and then God's grace in it. So we'll start with with looking at our preoccupation with with kings you'll you may have noticed uh, in verse 6 it says with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn shout for joy before the lord the king and this so the psalmist is announcing the coming of a judge and he calls this judge a king and this king's arrival seems to be anxiously anticipated by all of creation The entire world, all that God has made, and everything in it, all who live in it. Writers like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien have long pointed out, and and by the way, Bruce on on multiple occasions has has talked about this as well, that there's there's a great deal of ancient literature that has this theme in it, this pattern in it, where, where the world is is in darkness, the world is in chaos, the world is full, full of injustice. And yet, there's this anticipation for a good king who will ascend to the throne, ascend to authority, and bring order, bring peace. Or the, the theme may, may be slightly varied from that. There, there may be uh, themes running through ancient, history, uh, ancient literature that, that talk about how there was a good king... And, and that good king brought order and brought peace and prosperity. And then that king left. That king either died or that king was, was stripped of his power. And then the world fell into chaos or falls into disarray. And then there's this longing for that king to be restored, for that king to return. Obviously, if you're familiar with the, the literature of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, you know that, that particularly Tolkien has this theme in his literature. If you're familiar with, with the, the Lord of the Rings um, trilogy, you know that both in the books and, as well as the films, one of them is actually called The Return of the King. And so, so clearly his writing has a theme like this. But, but even in ancient Greek and Roman literature that, that's not based in Christianity at all, you'll see this kind, of, this kind of pattern, this kind of theme, where, where there is a rightful king who, who is put in power or who returns to power and brings about peace. Fairy tales are even filled with this kind of a, of a, of a pattern as well. But it's not just ancient literature where, where we see this kind of preoccupation, pursuit of, of a theme like this. we I think even in modern day uh, people have a preoccupation with monarchy and royalty. My guess is that, that this next picture that, I, that comes up on the screen will not be foreign to you. You know who Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are. Or before them, my guess is you you saw the wedding of Prince William and Catherine. And I don't have to remind those of you who are older like me of the decades that we devoted to Prince Charles and Diana. All this attention. i gotta, I got to let you know about something, I not want to burst your bubble. These people have no power. They have no, th- oh, no authority. I almost want to say, to quote from Elf, they sit on a throne of lies, but that's not really true. But they, but they don't have authority. They don't rule. And yet, particularly in Great Britain, these people can't move without a paparazzi and without everything that they do being published for the public consumption. Some suggest that, that this preoccupation with, with kings and royalty is because we recognize that, de- that democracy is not perfect. And it's not. Democracy may slow the evils of society. It makes it harder for corruption to, to thrive. But we all know that democracy is not immune from corruption. In fact, it was even Winston Churchill who was probably one of the greatest defenders of democracy in the last century who reportedly said, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. What he's acknowledging is that democracy is not perfect. It just happens to be the best one that we've found given the fact that human beings are prone to corruption. A lot of people would argue that the best form of government would be a benevolent dictatorship. If you could truly find a good king and a wise king, and they could really be in charge, well, the world would probably be a better place. But we don't have that. So we have democracy, which is kind of the best that we can find. But So some, th- some think that, our, that we have this preoccupation with kings because we know that the, the current form of government we have is not, not ultimately the best. But Tolkien and Lewis suggest there's a different reason for our preoccupation with kings. And it taps into something that is hardwired into our soul. It's the idea that, that the scriptures talk about as, as eternity in our hearts, that God has placed eternity in our hearts. There's something that we aspire to. We long for it. Maybe we've never even seen it, but we still long for it. As human beings made in the image of God, we have a consciousness of God. We have an awareness of God. Romans chapter 1 says that we have this knowledge of God, but we suppress it. We push it down. But deep down we know that we will not be what we were made to be until the one who made us returns and his benevolent rule is restored. Another way that we anticipate the coming judgment relates to the importance of truth. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand and identify yourself, but if you're over 40, like me, then you you probably remember a season of Western civilization where where we, we thought and the way that we, we def- defined our, our way of thinking was modernism. Modernism basically held science as the, the highest form of truth. That if you want, if you want to, to know what is true, then you look at science. Because science... Can tell you what truth is because science can give you proof. So we would say, well, if you want me to believe something, well, then show it to me, prove it to me. Use science to show it to me empirically. So if science says it's true, then it must be true. And if it's not, and if science doesn't prove it out, then then I'm not going to believe it. That's, That's kind of the mindset of modernism. But as the boomer generation transitioned, and and you started to see the arrival of the gen xers and even the millennials modernism gave way to another way of thinking that we've we've labeled postmodernism not very creative it's just what came after modernism but in postmodernism essentially we've become agnostic the dominant way of thinking or the, the dominant way of understanding the, the way that we can know truth is characterized by agnosticism. You can't really know absolute truth. And it ushered in a culture that, that said no point of view, no perspective, no culture, no way of looking at life is inferior to any other way of looking at life. All ideas, all perspectives stand on equal footing. Nobody's better, no point of view is better, and no point of view is, is inferior. One of the things that's positive that, that came from in postmodernism is that, that essentially voices and perspectives that used to not be heard, that we wouldn't listen to, they didn't get any press because they were peripheral, now those kind of perspectives and voices are heard. Things that used to be dismissed because they weren't the popular way of thinking now have a voice. And so it's promoted uh, an environment that's more, for, it's more conducive to listening to one another, to hearing different per- pers- perspectives and points of view. So I think that's, that's kind of a good thing that has come from postmodernism. Think about this, though. Is it your assumption that we still live in postmodernism? More and more, I don't think we are. In fact, the more I think about it, I think we've left postmodernism quite a while ago. The draw, one of the drawbacks to postmodernism is that if, if no perspective or point of view is better or worse than any other then you have no foundation upon which to say that something is wrong or something is false think about that if 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 every idea out there is equal equally value, valid therefore equally true then you have no, you have no basis on which to say that's false that's wrong that behavior is wrong. That belief is wrong. Because you also have no basis upon which to say that something is true or something is right. As helpful as postmodernism may have been for promoting discourse, I think it was doomed to be short lived. Why do I say this? Well, A, because I don't think it's sustainable, and B, I'm paying attention. Have you paid attention to public discourse lately? Have you listened to the way that debates are taking place in our society between people who don't agree with each other? Between politicians who don't agree with each other? We have grabbed hold of judgment with both hands. Everything now in public discourse has become either just or unjust. Moral or immoral. Racism, sexism, or fill-in-the-blank-ism. Everything. We don't hear people saying, oh, that's a valid point of view. Oh, your perspective is valid. Oh, we're all equal. No, nobody's saying that anymore. Everybody's saying, you're wrong and you're a fill-in-the-blank-ism. Here's the problem. Right and wrong, true and false are not being defined by some transcendent virtue. They're being defined by tribe. By what our group thinks. And everybody else becomes evil. What if the king of kings... And the Lord of Lords showed up, returned in power, and set rightness and truth straight for all the world. I think that would be great. I think that's what we need, frankly. I think that's the only way this mess can be made right. We're not going to argue each other into submission. But we're trying. We don't have a lot of time for for me to go into this very deeply, but, but I think you can apply this same line of thinking to justice and to throw in another word, to vengeance. I would suggest to you that because justice is an attribute of God and because we are made in the image of God, that we are hardwired for vengeance. Think about this. God said, don't engage in vengeance, right? He said that. Don't get involved in vengeance. But he didn't say, because it's wrong. He said, don't get involved in vengeance because vengeance is Mine. You catch that? He didn't say it's wrong. You're getting uncomfortable, aren't you? But he didn't say it. He said, don't get involved in vengeance because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I think we're hardwired for vengeance. I think that when we feel that the court system is not properly holding people accountable for their criminal behavior. It is in our reflexes to take matters into our own hands. Now, as long as we believe someone else will do it, we're okay. But as soon as we start to doubt that the people who are supposed to be doing justice aren't doing justice, we're inclined to take over. Flip the coin over and look at it on the other side. When we are fearing that law enforcement people are not legally and justly enforcing the law? What has the news over the last year told us we are inclined to do? We're inclined to take matters into our own hands. I think that's in our nature. And I'm not even suggesting necessarily that it's in our fallen nature. I think it's in our nature that 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 values justice. It's the same problem. That, well, let, let me let me transition this way because because we got to move on. But but I'm simply saying this: when you look at our preoccupation with the return of a good king, and our and our our value on truth and justice. I'm saying for all these reasons, we need judgment. We want judgment. But there's a problem with judgment, isn't there? You feel it. I feel it. We're all uncomfortable here. There's something, there's a problem that comes with judgment that we all recognize. I'm uncomfortable. And, and, and here's the problem. The problem or the difficulty with justice and judgment is every time I point to you, I have three fingers pointing back at me, right? Just for clarity, that's not in the Bible, okay? But the principle is the idea that be careful when you you point to other people in judgment that you got three fingers pointing back at you, that's actually a biblical concept, it's, it's the same reason that, that Jesus said, The one who is without sin, let them be the first one to cast a stone. Right? It's because we all know that if justice truly comes, then justice has to come on all sin. And because we're all sinners then true justice must come on all of us. That's a problem. R.C. Sproul, who was one of my seminary professors, used to say, be very careful when you ask God for justice, because he just might give it to you. It's the same problem that God faced when, back in Egypt, he wanted to deliver the Israelites from Pharaoh. You remember that back in the book of Exodus, where, and, and this is what's amazing about this psalm, most commentators draw a direct line from this psalm, Psalm ninety-eight, back to another song in the book of Exodus in chapter fifteen, where after God had delivered Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea, Moses and Miriam wrote a song. They wrote a song praising God for his, his great work, for his great deliverance. Listen, uh, let me just read a, a couple of excerpts from it. But, but commentators believe that the pattern of Psalm 98 runs, runs almost directly in mimic to this song in many ways in, in Exodus chapter 15. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. There's all this parallel kinds of language and form between the song of of Moses and Miriam in in Exodus 15, as is in Psalm 98. In order for true judgment to be brought on the land of Egypt... God's judgment would then have to fall on everyone who lived in the land, right? I mean, if if true justice has to come on all sinners, then it needed to come on all people in the land of Egypt, which included the Israelites whom God was trying to save. So God had an issue he had to deal with. Here was his solution. He instructed the Israelites, each household to take an unblemished lamb and kill it, sacrifice it. And then he instructed them to take the blood from that lamb and spread that blood on the frames of the doors of their home. And then the blood of that lamb would serve as a cover of protection when the angel of death would pass through all of Egypt the angel of death would pass over those homes and the firstborn males of each of those homes would live even though all the other firstborns in Egypt would die. This is the problem. The difficulty of judgment. That if true justice comes... Then it must come on all. Which means it must come on us. That's why we're uncomfortable. That's why justice is, is difficult. But this also brings us to God's gracious provision in the midst of judgment. Because the Passover lamb was a foreshadow, it was a pointer. It was a pointer to something in the future that had not yet come to pass. It was a picture of a true lamb who was yet to come. It's marvelous that in the New Testament, when John the Baptist first sees Jesus as an adult, he's with his disciples and he sees Jesus walk by and he says to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God is who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was not just being poetic. He was saying, remember back in Egypt, remember the blood of the lamb that covered the Israelites so that when the angel of death came, they were spared. That that lamb was pointing to another lamb, and that lamb just walked by. Jesus Christ the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was the spotless one. He himself knew no sin, and yet he was sacrificed for us. He went to the cross for us to atone for our sin, and his blood is what covers us. It covers our sin. To those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to be called children of God, heirs of God. In his first coming, he did not come to judge. We sang that in a song just a little while ago. In his first coming, he didn't come to judge, he came to save. But he will come again. And the scriptures tell us that when he comes again, he will come as a conquering king, and he will bring judgment. All the earth will shout for joy to the Lord, the king. The sea will resound, and the the rivers will clap their hands, and the mountains will sing together, for he will judge the world in righteousness. So I have a question for you not complicated, but it may not be easy. Do you believe this? What I mean is, do you believe the part about judgment? I, I'm assuming that most of you are not having a hard time believing the first half, that Jesus came to save. That little cute baby in a manger, swaddling cloths, Even that he went to the cross to die for our sins. Resurrection. Most Christians are very comfortable with those ideas. But do you believe that he is going to come again in judgment? The scriptures say he will. The same scriptures that predicted that he would come the first time as a savior also tell us that he will return as our judge. Let me leave you with two closing thoughts. If I believe, if I truly believe that this coming judgment is real, then Christ must be my most treasured possession. Doesn't that make sense? If this judgment is real and I believe that it's really going to happen... What else do you have that is more valuable to you than the one who will cover you and protect you from that judgment? Nothing you have. So if I truly believe that this judgment is real and it is coming, then Christ will be my most treasured possession. I will love him like no other because he means more to me than anything else the second thought is this. If I truly believe that this coming judgment is real, then my highest calling has to be gathering other people under this protection. Doesn't it? If it's really going to happen, if it's really coming, then, then isn't our highest calling then to gather other people in under the blood of the Lamb so that they too... Might live. May it be this way for us. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. And he will come again. And when he does, he will judge the earth in righteousness. Let us pray. Father, this is a really hard message. It's hard for us to hear. The first half isn't that hard, but this part about having, having come as our Savior, Jesus will return as our judge. Lord, if this is true, then, then Jesus really is our most treasured possession. He is the one whose blood covers us from the angel of death, from the judgment so that we might be spared. And Lord, if this judgment is real, then our highest calling must be to be seeking to gather others in under this blood of the Lamb protection as well, that they might be spared and live as well. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus this way, as our most treasured possession, and to see the gospel of our salvation, the message that brings rescue and deliverance To sinners like us, help us to see bringing others in to this protection as our highest calling. Please be working in us. Incline our hearts to these truths. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.